0: Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast. Great to have you with us. Calvary meets in the Jaffa Falston area north of Baltimore, and our pastor is Josh Plantholt. If you're nearby on a Sunday, come join us. For all the details, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching.
1: If I could turn your attention this morning to the 11th chapter of Revelation. We got a lot to get to, so we're just going to jump right on in. Oh, hi, Tom and Susan. <laughs> I love you guys. I didn't so saw you. Uh, sorry, distracted. Uh, verse 1, Revelation 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Let's pray before we get into verse three again. God, we ask that you would move mightily today, that you would strengthen us today, that you would refine what needs to be refined and build what needs to be built. We we do ask for a a mighty move of your spirit. We do pray. And in Jesus's name, amen. Verse three, new territory. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, we have just been told that during a three and a half year period, which seems to be the last three and a half years before the return of the Lord, that God will send two witnesses to Jerusalem and will prophesy. And if you remember, the last witnesses God God raised up were the 144,000 Jews from all 12 tribes of Israel to witness to the world. But here we have Two witnesses to prophesy specifically to the people in Jerusalem. And notice too, these two witnesses have been given ditto me, authority. And the emphasis here is that they come right from the instruction and the presence of God. These are two holy witnesses. Verse 4. These are two olive trees and the two two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Again, there's tabernacle imagery there. The lampstands were in the holy place before the presence of God. So again, they come from the presence of God. Verse five, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. Wow! That's morning breath. Uh, But But can you imagine? you imagine this? First of all, people are going to try to kill them. And their response is to shoot fireballs from their mouth and consume their enemies. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. So, really interesting. If you're familiar with this story, you kind of think of two super... Witnesses, but it says if anyone would harm them, that implies that they would be hurt. So it seems when someone would yell at them, punch them, shoot them, stab them, whatever may occur, the two witnesses would then retaliate and consume their enemies. So these men are receiving quite a lot of bumps and bruises to advance God's message. Verse six. And they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. I hope for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you're seeing a little Elijah there, the shutting up of the rain for three and a half years. And I hope you're seeing a little bit of Moses there with the water to blood. Um, and then verse, so we don't know who these guys are. We don't know who these guys are. I'm going to get into this a little bit next week. uh, But my best bet for today's story is Moses and Elijah. If I had to put money down on a horse, that's the one I'm I'm betting on. Uh, Verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony after the three and a half years, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So the whole world now wants these witnesses dead, and a beast will rise from the sea. And oh, I can't wait to get into that, but that's for another time. This is pretty clearly the Antichrist. And he will be the only one to successfully kill these two witnesses. Verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And what a terrible verse that is. Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt. Wow. Verse 9, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. So the people, the tribes, the nations are about to be differentiated from those who dwell on the earth. So I could be wrong here, but based upon the context, I believe verse 9 is talking about the Gentiles. For three and a half days, the Gentiles will gaze at the dead bodies. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth, notice there's a distinction, uh, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. We're gonna pause for a bit here. The word earth here in the Greek is pronounced gay. Um, that's just what the Greek word is. And that what that word means is possibly Earth, but more likely it means land. Matthew 2, verse 6 says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the gay of Judah, in the land of Judah. That wouldn't make any sense to say the earth of Judah. It's the land of Judah. So point being, verse 9 speaks of the Gentiles. Then the people of the land would be the people in the holy city of Jerusalem. The Gentiles are not going these to want these, these bodies touched and will gaze upon them. And the people of the land, Israel, will rejoice over over them because those two troublemakers have been causing trouble in their own city. Uh, And the way the Jewish people will rejoice will be to exchange gifts with each other over their deaths. Maybe their death marks the beginning of Hanukkah or maybe a new week-long celebration, but either way, their party is about to be cut short, (laughs) as we are soon to read. Now, verse 11, verse 11 is so, So good. It's so amazing. The people have been partying for three and a half days. And the the scene reads very much like the scene of the golden calf. But instead of the golden calf, they are rejoicing, not over. Remember when Aaron said at the golden calf and he said, Behold, the God that brought you out of Egypt. And they feasted and danced and celebrated before the golden calf. But here, the Antichrist is their liberator. And now they're having a new golden calf in the Antichrist. And they are celebrating at the liberation that he has provided for the Jewish people once again. But then, if you remember the story of the golden calf, remember they're dancing? And then Moses comes down the mountain with Joshua and break the party up? Well, here, God's about to send two witnesses up from the dead to break this party up. Uh, so verse, verse 11, but after three and a half days, a breath of life uh, uh, from God entered them, the two witnesses, and they stood up on their feet. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how awesome that was? For three and a half days, they're dead, they're dead, and then they spring to life up on their feet. And it says, I love this, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Busted. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Wow. So, when the two witnesses were slain, the people of Jerusalem rejoiced. Like before the golden calf, they danced, and made merry. Uh, these two witnesses were, were claiming, you have to remember to be from God. And then they said, that's it, it's not going to rain anymore. And for three and a half years, it didn't rain. So they also seem to be coming from God, and it seems to be ver- verified And then their message is one of sackcloth. Remember, they're wearing sackcloth here as they preach. So I'm sure there's rebuke in their message that you all are in sin. And as we just read, the people got so fed up with them, they tried to take their life, yet every attempt upon their life ended with the death of their own people. These men who speak against Jerusalem claim to be from God, and at the same time, God seems to be protecting them. But then the Antichrist comes And he kills the two witnesses. And I'm sure he says, oh, those were just two liars. And I'm sure everyone gobbled that up. And the people rejoiced, and I'm sure they felt vindicated. So they rejoiced and exchanged gifts, and they danced over their dead bodies. But when the two witnesses were raised, great fear fell on them, very much like Haman from the book of Ruth. They had conceived of a plot with the king But in the end, their very own plot betrays them. The people of Jerusalem turn to the Antichrist to kill these teachers, these witnesses, God's faithful, and in the end, they are raised from the dead, and now the death that they planned for the two witnesses is about to fall upon their own heads, upon Jerusalem, in an earthquake. The earthquake, in many ways, is reminiscent, in some ways, of Haman's gallows, but that's for another time. So when we, what we do need to see here Before we go any further, very much like Jesus on the cross. When evil people kill God's messengers, we have to understand they often feel very justified and vindicated in their death. They feel that their sin has somehow been vindicated as virtue or at the very least excusable as their accusers are now removed. And this is nothing new. Isn't this the story all the way back in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain versus Abel? The wicked often feel relieved and vindicated when they kill the godly, but the vindication is a false assurance. And just as Jesus rose from the tomb, so these two witnesses will rise, and it is in their rising that the accusers stand condemned. When they saw those two witnesses rise, everything, all the lies that they had believed about them, all of a sudden crashed, blew up smoke and fire. All of these feelings they had of vindication were false. It was a lie. Then verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. It was at the earthquake that a tenth of the city fell, and in combination with the resurrection and ascension, it is at this moment that the people of the land, the Jewish people, will come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And when it says a tenth of the city fell, one has to wonder what part of the city fell, don't you? See, that's a question I ask myself. Uh, maybe Temple Mount. We just do not know, but I'm going to get into that tomorrow's Bible study if you want to watch it. But anyways, in today's text, we see that the Gentiles will remain unaffected by this, but the people in Jerusalem, the nine-tenths that survive, 60,000 will give glory to God. But if you think about it, so far in this book, we have seen a fourth of the earth killed, and then we saw a third of the earth killed, We've seen continents swallowed up by fireballs. We've seen oceans been completely destroyed. And you would expect now with this earthquake that millions of people are going to die. Maybe half the city is going to get destroyed. But interestingly, only a tenth perish. This all seems so very anticlimactic when you read it in in a line here. But there's a stronger point to be made than judgment. This earthquake is not about judgment. It's about revival. The nine-tenths left alive, it says, gave glory to God. There's a revival in Jerusalem. And so this tells us what this has all been about. God's two witnesses, the sackcloth, the plagues, the drought, the fire, the resurrection, the voice from heaven, the ascension, the earthquake, and the tenth. This whole scene is about God restoring the lost. All of it, all of it has been leading to revival. God wants to save Jerusalem, and here he is in this chapter, employing in these two men many signs and wonders from the Old Testament. They're missionaries to the Jewish people. So God sends two missionaries to encapsulate the entire Old Testament to them. It's almost as if the ministry of Moses and all of the prophets are wrapped up into these two witnesses, as God's way of, symbolically of course, taking Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. It's almost as if God has sent these two men who personify the entire Old Testament to proclaim a singular message that Jesus is Lord. Repent of your sins for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And praise God, after the preaching and the drought and the plagues and the resurrection, ascension, earthquake, finally Jerusalem will receive. Praise God. And that's today's text. I want to close with one thought, and I'm not being sneaky. It's actually one thought. Being a faithful witness. I want to talk about witnessing. And what I mean by that is sharing the gospel. In Revelation chapter 10, John is given the word of God, the scroll, and is told to prophesy. And in Revelation chapter 11, we are introduced to two men who prophesy. Prophecy in this context means to share the word of God and not necessarily the future. In many ways, we're called to prophesy to give the word of God wherever we go. Now, Revelation chapter 10 and 11 draw and build upon another passage in the Old Testament pretty heavily. And that's Ezekiel chapter two and three. So behind Revelation 10 and 11, Ezekiel chapter two and three has been in the background. This story's almost placed on top of. And in in two and three in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel's commission to take a scroll and to eat it, and then to prophesy to a hard-hearted people. So this passage in Ezekiel is nearly identical to our passage in Revelation, but what makes Ezekiel chapter two and three so helpful is within this con- within this text are the instructions on how to be a faithful witness to a hard-hearted people. Thinking of us, I love sharing the gospel. Does anyone ever come up to you and go, uh, what does it mean to be born again? Or uh, what, What? Uh, can you tell me about Jesus? Like, I love when that happens. It's like you just set up a T-ball and I'm ready to, yeah. Uh, and there are times where you're talking with somebody and they're so receptive to the Bible. And that's a glorious thing. But not every witnessing conversation goes like that. It, it's often very tough when someone's Combative. About their, fa- I'm not a big fan of confrontation. I'm I'm pretty easygoing guy, but sometimes witnessing takes that turn, and I don't know about you. I don't, you know, I don't toss a I love Jesus grenade in the middle of a party and see who's gonna, you know, take it. Uh, but I notice a lot of times people find out that I'm a Christian, and often people will become combative with me. They'll want to challenge me. They'll want to poke at me because they must, I must be an idiot. Of course he believes in the, the, the fairy and, and God, the spaghetti monster. And it becomes a very difficult conversation sometimes. Um, and so I want to spend our time here today on witnessing to a tough audience. First of all, because it is our job as believers to absorb the word of God and to share it. And sometimes they're not as receptive as we'd hope they'd be. (laughs) So in many ways, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, 20, to go into all the nations and to teach them and to share the word to them. So these instructions in Ezekiel about faithful witnessing in many ways are useful instructions uh, to the church on how to do what the Lord has required us to do. Again, if you are a believer, Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1, Jesus does not ask that we would be willing to share his word. He commands us to. God has not asked you to share the word. He tells you to. It is a command in scripture to witness to people, and that includes people who are (laughs) hard-hearted. As 1 Peter 3.25 says, to be ready always with a defense. So I want to turn to Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3. If you want to turn there, great. If you want to listen, great. Either way, I'm going to read it to you. So uh, let's look at a passage of difficult witnessing. uh, And that's Revelation. uh, And again, Revelation chapter 10 and 11 are are built upon it. So Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3. Let's see what we can draw from this, huh? Because this was fun for me. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1. And he seems to be Jesus said to me, "Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you." And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. you've seen a little connection already? And I heard him speaking to me, and he said to me, "Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel. you seen it again? To nations of rebels who have rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. So Ezekiel is called to witness to a stubborn people. That may be your calling. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Pause. So here's our first witnessing instruction. God wants the word proclaimed whether our audience hears or refuses to hear. (laughs) Now there's a sense that the prophet's job is a little bit different than our own, but there's also a sense that believers are to share the word to any and everybody. Like the prophets, believers are sent ones from, with the word from the Lord. So please hear me. Your job is to share the word. What's not your job is to make sure that people receive the word. You can't save anybody. Salvation belongs to who? God, the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And here Ezekiel is told, some will listen to you. And some will not. So question, is it your failure if someone doesn't receive the word from you? No, (laughs) no, it is not. And just think about it. How absolutely horrible would it be if God told Ezekiel or us that your family, your friends, your coworkers, your parents, your kids, whoever, will be saved if you do a good job. (laughs) If you witness well enough. Wouldn't that be horrible? Could you ever rest? Of course not. None of us would have any peace. We'd be restless. It would also mean that those who reject the gospel reject it because of what? Our inadequacies. Our failures. Our parents, our kids, our spouses in hell because we didn't do enough. How horrible would that be? But here it is in Ezekiel, plain as day, and of course shown all through the Scriptures, that the messenger is not responsible for how the message is received. The messenger's job is simply to faithfully deliver the message. And I could speak from experience here. There have been some sermons that I have given that I have felt been so terrible. <laughs> And I watched my father give enough of them. Oh, every Sunday. But you give some sermons and you're like, boy, that was a stinker, you know. And often on those Sundays, someone will come up to me crying, going, my life's been changed today. And I'm like, I don't know how that happened. I really don't. Or someone comes up to me and says, I've come to faith in Christ today. I go, you got to be kidding me but I have learned this well. When God wants to grab a hold of somebody, the messenger's inadequacies can't stop (laughs) them. You may be sitting here today and God's just stirring you and stirring you and stirring you. And you're listening about some big guy talk about witnessing. I don't care about witnessing, but God's going to get you. (laughs) You can be sitting in a teaching that you feel doesn't pertain to you at all. And when God says, "Mine, your is," He grabs a hold of a person in the strangest of times. And at the same time, no matter how clear or powerful a message may be, until God moves on them, they're going to sit there cold as a stone, unmoved, unchanged. This is also spiritual. This is not a human invention. We are not professional orators and witnesses. and This is not what we... This is also spiritual. And we need to get over ourselves to think that we got to do, 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 do. No. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You are not the Lord. (laughs) And then God continues with Ezekiel. And again, this is such instruction for the church. Verse 6. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. How about that? Don't care what people think about you. Throw the briars and thorns with you, and you sit on scorpions. I don't recommend it. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. Twice now, God says essentially, just give them the word. Whether they hear or refuse, just give them the word. If if you want to reach the lost people in your life, according to God, then just give them the word. Loved ones, t- testimonies are great. You ever hear someone's testimony and you just turn into a puddle because it's so powerful? Testimonies are great. A life well lived is incredible, but it is the word of God that is truly the power of God. It is the, It is a sword sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between soul and spirit. Your testimony can't do that. If you want to reach the lost people in your life, then give them the word. And as fast as you can, Romans 1 get to the cross for it is the power of God. And yes, use every weapon at your disposal. You know, if you're funny, use humor. Humor is a great way to get through to people. If you're hospitable, use hospitality. If if you have a strong testimony, great. You know, one of the greatest pieces of evangelistic uh, uh, technique, if you can even call it that, advice I can give you, is don't talk so much. (laughs) Be a good listener. Sometimes the greatest things you can say are just listening to someone talk. Because let me tell you, if someone talks to you long enough, eventually they're going to want to hear what you have to say. Listen to people. Use every weapon available to you. But remember, it is during the sharing of the word that God delights in saving sinners. Now, we have to give a little footnote here because we don't want to walk into a room and machine gun fire Bible verses at people either. Uh, you know, there are... Yeah, You ever talk to somebody and all they can do is quote scripture? You ever met anyone like that? You feel like you're talking to a Bible app. It's like, is there a person behind those eyes? You're a machine. You know, how are you doing? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. I'm going to punch you. You know? Remember, even, didn't Jesus tell stories? Yeah. Jesus, he was accused of being a drunkard because he sat around and laughed and talked about the meat and the, the whatever. And you know, remember, he even pointed to the news when the tower fell. He pointed to world events. He sometimes he'd be preaching, "Go look at the birds." He'd point to, you know, he used he used humor to draw people. I love that story of. There once was a man who feasted sumptuously every day. He tells the story of the rich man. And it says he even wore expensive underwear. Jesus starts laughing about the guy's expensive drawers, you know. But he even used humor to draw people in. We, we need to make sure that we're not so rigid in our witnessing. We're not giving people salmonella. <laughs> we're, we're giving them joy. Be joyful. But at the same time, the word still needs to be present. Not according to this guy. According to God. Give him the word. Verse 8. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Don't become like the culture. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you, uh, whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. You see in the connection. This is exactly Revelation chapter 10 and 11. Verse two, so I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my, uh, speak with my words to them. There's the word of God. For you are not sent to a people of, of, of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language. Those words you cannot understand. Surely, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. Now listen to verse 7. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. All of these themes are in the New Testament, but we have been told something so powerful. God tells Ezekiel to give the people the word of God to a people who God knows are not going to listen to him. But then he goes on to tell Ezekiel that it's not because of Ezekiel. They will not listen to Ezekiel. The reason they will not listen to Ezekiel is because they are not willing to listen to the the one who sent Ezekiel. Every faithful witness in here has to understand something, especially if you're going to be used by God to reach the lost, if you're going to publicly associate yourself with Jesus Christ and his word, then you have to understand that some people are just going to hate you for no other reason other than the fact that they hate God. I remember I was a young man, my very first hospital visit by myself, and I was ready to go in there and have a conversion right then and there. And I, we got a phone call from a mother in Florida. Her son had a, had a motorcycle accident. He was in his young 20s and he wrecked. And he wasn't a believer, but she wanted us to go. So I went, I get in the room. Uh, he, he looks at me, he's, you know, not very friendly, but okay. And I said, hi, my name's Josh Planal from Calvary Chapel. And he went, and he started yelling at me, furious with me, yelled me out of the room. Uh, And eventually, I don't know why, maybe God, he let me pray with him, and then he yelled me out of the room. But it had nothing to do with me. It was who I represented. You know, if you're going to live your life as a faithful witness, you have to accept the fact that some people are going to hate you because they hate God. And this is so important to accept because it tells us something very, very essential to not take every insult personally. Do we not live in such a time in an age of victimhood and outrage? Everyone's upset about everything. My chicken's cold. Oh, you know, I need a safe space. It's crazy. Everyone's upset about everything. Don't do that. If you're one of those people that are always offended, I'm telling you, for the sake of the gospel, you need to get over yourself. Not everything's about you. You ever just talk to somebody and they just lose their mind? It's like, they might have had the worst day of their life today. It's not about me. You know, I, I, you know, some people just have a horrible day and they just lost their job and their horse died or whatever it is, and they, they see you and you're the last domino on a long line of stinky dominoes, and they just snap on you. It's not about you. And some people are just bitter and angry and miserable. So don't take it personally. And even more important, don't let it steal your witness. And biblically, some, sometimes people's rage and rudeness, according to the Bible, is spiritual. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 that in the end days, people will be tufaho. Doesn't that sound like an Indian word, like a Native American? Tufaho, like a, I don't know. But that's, that's what they'll be in the end days. And it means to puff smoke, Fuming and ready to blow. That's what the spirit of the end will be. Everyone's just a fire's brewing. So there's a spiritual component to people's rage and rudeness. Remember, God told Ezekiel the way they look at you, don't let it bother you. You ever give people just give you the stink eye? Who cares? Let them stink away. If you get, if you're the kind of person that takes offense to everything, you need to get over yourself because it's not always about you. And if this really is spiritual, as the Bible says, and people can really be agents of evil, and they are mean to you, that must mean that they were sent to you to steal your witness, your reputation, your peace, your joy. So don't let them. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. Don't, don't let him mar your witness. Don't let him steal your effectiveness in advancing the kingdom of God. And please don't mistake what I'm saying. It's not that you can't ever be upset. That's also not true. There are times where people are so mean to you. You ever have someone so mean to you it just takes you a little bit to collect yourself? You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But we also need to be aware that Not every time someone is mean to us, it's not necessarily anything we've done. And we shouldn't, as believers in those moments, make it about ourselves or let the enemy steal our witness or joy and peace. For this is is one of the great examples of the Apostle Paul. Do you notice he's constantly being beat up wherever he goes? And then he's almost immediately planting churches there. His churches were built upon the very people who just got done beating them up. If he was given to this victimhood culture, it would have never happened. It's the story of the early church. The early church had to get over themselves. This was a spiritual war and you were the face of Christ to people whose hearts were given over to evil. And we couldn't take it personally. And then Ezekiel says in eight, verse eight, behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And here's a piece of witnessing counsel that I have not read in any book besides the Bible. Be hard headed. Isn't that great? One of the gifts God can give his faithful witnesses is to be hard-headed. And what we see here, stubbornness isn't necessarily a sin. God can gift the godly stubbornness as a weapon for his glory and kingdom. And this righteous hard-headedness is something that we all should desire to be fixed and immovable in the things that are fixed and immovable. We shouldn't necessarily be hard-headed about politics or preferences Or whatever, but when it comes to the message of the gospel of God, we need to be immovable. We need to have flint foreheads or like Jesus in Isaiah 50 verse 7, have a face like flint, it says. This is one of the reasons I I say all the time, there's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. The reason I say that all the time is not because I think you forget, because I want you to have a hard head about that. I want you to know the way of salvation. The way to hell is broad, but narrow is the way. And that narrow way is in Jesus Christ. We have to have hard heads about that. (laughs) This is why I talk so much about holiness, because God is holy. We have to be hard-headed about this. This That's why I talk so much about grace or joy and bacon, because these are glorious things. That we need to be hard-headed about, fixed, unmoved about, unswayed by culture, unswayed by politics. Verse 10, we're almost done here. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you receive in your heart and hear with your ears and go to the exiles to your peoples and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Well, Then the Spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wind Wings of the living creatures as they touched one another and the sound of the wheels beside them and the sound of a great earthquake and the spirit lifted me up and took me away and I went in bitterness and the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And it says he eventually sat there overwhelmed for seven days. God's instruction here, we're done Ezekiel. God's instruction here in Matthew 28 In Deuteronomy 7, in Psalm 119, in 2 Timothy 4, the job of the messenger first is to receive the word themselves. The first thing a faithful messenger called by God must do is to ingest, digest, to store the word of God in ourselves first, Before we give it out. You ever see someone, a preacher, say a whole lot of grandiose things and their life is hell behind those scenes? They're in sin, they're sleeping around, they're doing this. It's it's a perversion of God's heart. We have to first ingest and live the word of God before we give it out. Before we share the word, we must first study the word to live the word. The word needs to be assimilated by us, by you, first. And this is what uh, I, I can tell you, that salvation belongs to the Lord, and God brings salvation through faithful witnesses. If God wants to save a group of people, he wants to use faithful people. Not because the faithful person is able to do it, but because God wants to honor a faithful person. He wants to use a faithful person, a broken person, a weak person who points to the glory of God to sustain them. Not so that they can build monuments unto themselves and their own victories. And faithful witnesses are faithful to the word. They study the word to live the word. To share the word. I got a story I wasn't gonna share, but I'm gonna share it. A young man went up to a, a famous pastor, and he says, I think God's calling me to into the ministry. And the pastor's advice to the young man was, Are you prepared to be alone? And what he means by that, when I heard that, there wasn't much more elaboration. But as I thought about my own life, I thought it's very much true. God's faithful people need to be willing to be alone. To stand alone when all others sit. To charge in when all others charge away. We need to be up reading our Bible before the world begins. We need to be on our knees in prayer when no one else is watching. We need to be prepared to be alone. We need to be alone. More importantly, we need to be alone with the Lord. We need to separate our time aside for him. It says of Jesus that before the sun was up, it says he spent an hour with the Lord in prayer, or God in prayer. If Jesus needs to get alone with God, boy, how much more do we? (laughs) And so, heading in the next week's study, I want to encourage you to get out there and share the word with the unsaved and the backslidden people in your life. But before you do that, get alone with God. Great men and women of the Lord are not made by great victory. It's made... Great men and women of God, if there is such a thing, that that is born on a person's knees in prayer. An absolute dependency upon God to provide for them just one more day. Because if we were given our way, we would sell it all for a bowl of stew. We would throw it all away as fast as we could. We would burn our marriages, our life, our witness to the ground in seconds if God's spirit was taken from us. And so we must get alone with God, not because we need to be these great spiritual conquerors, but because if we're going to make it just one more day, God has to do it in us. And so we need to get alone with the Lord. And once we've done that, then we advance the kingdom. And let me tell you, God is not asking us to advance the kingdom. He's telling us to. In Matthew 28, 18, it says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are to teach the nations to observe the word. To observe means to live the word. Well, how do the unsaved learn how to live the word? By watching us live the word. And how do we live the word? By first knowing the word. (laughs) Family, we have to get alone with God first. Let him mold and conform us and then take that to the ends of the earth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. God, we pray that you would give us both tender hearts and thick skins. (laughs) We pray that you would help us to, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring us to our knees in dependency upon you. Help us to cast aside all pride, all self-entitlement, And help us to understand that that you are our strength. You are our rock and our high tower, our dwelling place. God, apart from you, we can do nothing good eternally. But in you, we are more than conquerors. And so we do pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would conform us and change us and pour your spirit out upon us. God, we pray that you would amplify the weakness within our own hearts that we may drive even more closely into you. And God, we do pray that you would use us mightily. Help us to advance your kingdom. God, help us to read and study and absorb your word and live your word. And God, we ask that you would help give us a mighty message to proclaim. We do ask for a clarity in our witness. We do ask for an effectiveness in our witness, God. But salvation belongs to you so god if it would desire if it would please you then god we desire to be vessels for your glory to see people ushered into the kingdom through us god we do pray that you would use us to build your church for your glory hey god we pray for those in here who do not know you that have gone wayward they have fallen away God, we ask that you would grab a hold of them and help them to live from this moment here until the day that you call them home for you and your glory. Help them to plug into strong, faithful Christians on how to live the word. God, add to your church today. If anyone needs prayer, we have people to pray with by the side door. Please go to them. God, we thank you for bringing us here today. So be with us now, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, all agreed said. Amen. Stand in worship.
0: Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary Baltimore. Please keep in touch. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. Finally, if you're unable to come see us in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast.